0: I'm really interested to hear, Nick. Did you say the other day when we were talking that you just done an Ironman at the weekend? Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. That's an awful but exciting thing to have done. I would imagine. I think it's your first English? word.
1: Yeah, I did the London Marathon October last year, and it seemed the obvious next step. <laughs> but <laughs> usually, I mean, most people sort of do a half Ironman first. But my mate and I were like, let's just crack on. And I'm not going to lie, it was pretty brutal. And Bolton, I mean, the course was windy, hilly, rainy, and pretty horrific. 3,000 meters of climbing in the cycle. That's nuts. Oh, and then to get off your bike, legs feeling like lead, and then do a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Are
2: you planning somewhere a bit more exotic next time?
1: Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> somewhere around Europe, maybe.
0: But you will do another one, do you think? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow.
1: They say you only ever do Bolton once, and I can see why. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
2: I can imagine.
0: Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market.
2: I'm Charles Cronier.
0: And I'm Jessica Clark. And insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP.
2: We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website.
0: Let's kick off with this week's episode.
2: So Nick, we've worked together in various capacities for many, many years. You started your actuarial career at LCP in, I think it's about 2007, wasn't it? Yeah. We had a few really enjoyable years working together, and then you moved out into industry and you've had a number of very exciting roles. And now you are Group Chief Actuary of Canopius. But I know that your role contains quite a lot more than just the actuarial function stuff. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about your role and the stuff that occupies your time?
1: Firstly, I'd say it was an absolute pleasure working back at LCP and sort of leaving probably the week I qualified to come into industry. (laughs) Certainly stood me in good stead for working in a Lloyd's syndicate and I think what's interesting is seeing how the role of the actuary has changed. When I joined Canopius, I was one of two pricing actuaries. And in that time, our pricing team has grown up to 10 or 12. My responsibilities at Canopus are the core pricing reserving capital areas. But I guess as we've gone through quite a major transformation, having a broader look at the likes of strategy and ensuring that strategy is at the heart of decision-making I think what we're seeing across the industry is people being more proactive in the way that they run their business and actually looking at the likes of capital being an input into the business strategy and the business planning process rather than an output.
2: I'm aware that you have been leading a strategic review within Canopius over the last few months. Do you want to just talk about how that project came to be and why it made sense for you as Group G Factory to be the person coordinating and leading that?
1: So we enlisted the help of Mackenzie at the back end of last year to, as you say, do a strategic review of the whole business. And that's led by our new CEO that's come in. And that was looking across the whole business in terms of the operating model, as well as fundamentally the business strategy and where we were going to become or where we were going to see our sources of distinctiveness. So not only looking at setting out a much clearer three-year business plan, looking at the underlying business to be right, and as I say, the capital aspect as well. And then separately to that, looking at a more clearer structure across the business, so delineating London from the group. So now we have a group leadership team, and then we have regional excos, And already you can see the sort of change in thinking of group versus business units. And we sort of introduced this concept of swim lanes. So everybody's much clearer on their roles. But at the same time, you want to help your mate next to you in their swim lane.
0: Sounds like quite a lot to change in what feels like quite a small period of time. But you're saying it's already feel like it has been embedded and people have adopted into it. Was that because there was already quite a big buy-in for what sounds like quite a big change? Like there was definitely a feel within the business that a change was needed and it's been taken as real positive? Or have you kind of seen any pushback or... Do you think things might revert to the old ways?
1: I think the key has been to enlist the help and support of a huge number of people in the business. So at the moment, we've got a good two or 300 people who are responsible or involved in various initiatives across the business. And having that consistency of looking at individual, we call them initiatives, but sort of exercises, I guess, with milestones that range from building out better tools and data systems to exploring new business opportunities and having a consistent format in which you can then prioritize and then put together a three-year plan or a plan of some description. Having everybody stuck into that, yeah, it's been quite an exciting time. But as you say, a huge amount of change in a very short period of time. And I think for us as a business, it's been great I think in the past, sometimes we've been guilty of analysis paralysis, and it's been great having a third party holding our feet to the fire and just saying, you've got two weeks to do this analysis, get on with it. And so making sort of quicker decisions, getting a few wrong, is better in aggregate than slightly procrastinating.
2: Okay, so focus on execution.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
2: Something I wanted to go back to was something you mentioned earlier on, which was the areas of differentiation. I guess, where are you going to stand out from your competitors? Where are you going to be the insurer of choice? And I do sometimes think when I look at the London market, I sometimes think that there's not enough of that thinking going on, especially in a subscription market where lots of people are writing the same risks. How important do you see that, that differentiation as being when setting a strategy and how are insurers going to have to do that differently in order to survive in the future?
1: Well, I think what's really interesting is answering that question in a hard market versus a soft market. In a soft and softening market, you're almost in sort of defensive mode. You're putting out fires. You can see the results deteriorating and the rates not being there. And so it's almost picking your way through opportunities. And as I say, just being in a sort of slightly defensive mode. As the market hardens, there's then an opportunity to stretch your legs and look for those business opportunities. The key is differentiation rather than being unique. So The reality is that, yes, we all do look at similar business, but you don't need to be wholly unique in the way that you write it. I think there are elements which are certainly great to your customer. It's important that you have the credit rating that you need to write the business and that you have a great claims team and a claims function and have a reputation for being reliable in a market. In some of the transactions I've looked at, the likes of a large LPT that we've written that we found at the end of last year, the importance of relationships and a bit of give and take over a period of time and working up those relationships is as important as anything else.
0: Do you think that with that change, the kind of transparency of insurer strategies or insurer strategies are becoming more transparent? Is it kind of clearer to see the direction that a firm's moving in or what they're Differentiating point is, or is it still very much a guarded secret and something that it's held back?
1: That's a great question because so often you can go away, put a wet towel over your head, and come up with a great strategy, and you think what you're doing is incredibly unique. But the reality is that many others are doing exactly the same thing. And actually, you've got to ask the market when you go out with your new strategy and the way that you're going to write your business and how you're going to run the business, and asking them. Does this resonate and can you see a difference? And you've got to be open to the fact that many others are doing a similar thing. I think it's important with your strategy to know the problem that you're solving for. And quite often that's dependent on your ownership. I think throughout my 10 or 11 years at Canopius, we've been under very different owners, the likes of Sompo, who have had an enormous balance sheet, to currently privately owned and their risk appetites are very different their time horizons are different and actually the starting point for any strategy is is their underlying risk appetite and then you need to work from there and certainly we've seen a big change in that and that's really where it starts from
2: one thing i'm keen to understand is with that focus on the risk appetite of the capital provider and letting everything percolate down from there what would be some examples of how you'd be looking for underwriters in their own day-to-day behaviours to change or to adapt to reflect that on the ground.
1: Interestingly, I don't think it does sort of percolate down. Fundamentally, risk appetite will be expressed in terms of your limit size, the volume of business you write in a certain area, your aggregates, etc. And then once those parameters are set, it's then a question of execution within the underwriting fraternity. So I, I wouldn't say that there's a fundamental change in mindset. Interesting. I would say more broadly, of course, culture is so important. And actually, when I look at some of the decisions or the areas where we have succeeded or failed over the last few years, if you fundamentally look where the source of that success or failure, it's so often comes back to the culture and you need to be open as a business and as leaders to be criticized and for individuals throughout the business to point out where things are not going well and listen to potential opportunities or ideas, and then collaboratively work together to execute. And that's fundamentally, in my mind, from what I've seen, more important than setting the strategy.
2: And would it be a fair challenge to say that at the moment, with relatively hard markets, some of that cultural integrity is not really being tested to its limits, but we may well see a point in the coming years where we do find out how this culture bears up under tougher times?
1: Yes, I think we saw it bear out sort of three, four, five years ago. And there has certainly been a shift, particularly with the dawn of better data and technology and the investments into improved processes. And the underwriters, I think now with a fundamental realization that they are part of a team and that their decision making will be better with more information at their fingertips. So you can see them being more collaborative across the market. But what is fascinating is, particularly within the Lloyds market, seeing that still a very diverse range of cultures. And obviously, this is a huge focus for Lloyds at the moment. And they obviously have been testing and assessing through Rio. And I think that's going to be hugely fascinating to see the results of that. It does feel as though it's certainly quite appropriately at the top of everyone's agendas. And for me, I think that's hugely exciting. And the likes of having D discussed at board level on a very regular basis. That is how we're going to be a better industry and, and better businesses fundamentally.
0: I mean, that's really great to hear that you feel like it is moving in the right direction. A couple of different questions here. How much was the kind of cultural part of the strategy review you did? How much did that really feed into that discussion? And I guess my kind of other question is... Say so your kind of involvement on the board and D&I being part of the, the discussions, maybe just more generally across the market. Do you feel conversations at that level are turning into actions? I feel like we can sometimes end up in the term where we talk a lot, but actually meaningful action can take a long time to happen. So, do you see that connection between the two there?
1: So, I guess your first question was it part of the business review? 100% yes. It was a work stream in its own right, looking at culture. And as part of that, I and
0: D. You say I and D and we say D and I. Yes,
1: sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, that's
0: fine. It's just so odd quirk. Just for everyone as we mean inclusion and diversity or diversity and inclusion. Indeed. And we include all versions of the acronym, but yeah.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Well, I guess for us, diversity is key, but actually being invited to the party is as important as who joins. And I guess it's about making people feel that they are comfortable and supported To succeed and be themselves. Canopius' journey started much sooner than the strategic view that we carried out last year, setting up special interest groups, having it as a standing agenda item at board level, and getting individuals across the business involved in setting the direction of our IND policy and strategy. And already we've seen the support come through. We've seen actual regular events throughout the business, whether it be speakers, doing compulsory training sessions, making people understand their blind spots, essentially.
2: You can understand it's kind of like, for others, the journey is harder. And it's all about how we sort of bring everybody along and understand each other better. I wanted to go back to one of the sort of underwriting fundamentals and get your take on it, which is the sort of lead underwriting versus follow underwriting. And just kind of understand how each of those fits into your overall strategy. And one of the reasons for asking is I have in the back of my mind that there is a big push at the moment for algorithmic underwriting, which basically follow underwriting with some clever bits attached, potentially. How does that figure in your overall plan?
1: Well, I think with any business strategy, you would want to make the most of your special source and your lead underwriters. And to do that, you need to focus on the areas of business that are more heterogeneous. And I think that pool of heterogeneous risk is diminishing. As more information is becoming available, more decision making is being improved by various other data sources. And so, when it comes to setting a strategy, you would always want to lead more of the business because that ultimately, I think, is going to be a more reliable source of income. Because when it comes to follow, you are essentially a capital provider. And so, when you set your strategy, I think looking at all the business opportunities that you have presented to you, and of course we need underwriters to go and drum up new business and find new opportunities, but putting them through a process in which you can assess, is it a type of business that you would want to retain, you have the risk appetite and the capital support it, or is it good business but you don't have the risk appetite or capital? In which case, can you then find other third-party paper, where it be reinsurance an ILS, a consortia, etc., put it through an MGA, and essentially capitalise on that potential revenue stream by making the most of that sort of special source, as we sort of mentioned.
0: I'm going to derail things slightly, because as we record this live, Boris Johnson has just announced that he will resign as the UK Prime Minister. No, Yeah, it's happened. So I know, shall one of the areas we wanted to discuss with you, Nick, was politics and lots of factors recently has meant there's been a real deglobalization in terms of, especially here in the UK, kind of how we operate. Is that something that you're considering at all as part of your strategy? And also, to some degree, how much does Boris Johnson resigning as prime minister impact the decisions you make? What does this actually mean for an insurer practically? So sorry to derail slightly. No, not at all.
1: I would like to come back to the algorithmic underwriting at some point. Wow. I mean, firstly, wow, big news. (laughs) It was certainly heading in that direction as of last night, but wow, finally done. Political stability will drive more predictable economic outcomes. And I think the predictability of the economic outlook is what is going to drive specific business decisions. And it essentially comes down to the nature or this kind of risk environment That we're operating in. And the likes of Boris Resigning is in some way going to drive political and therefore economic instability, and certainly how the rest of the world views the UK and wants to trade with us. But I would say it's sort of less of an impact, I would have thought, compared to many other industries. We operate across the globe. Yes, there deglobalization, but at the same time, there'll always be a strong market for ENS business within Lloyds, for example. And so I wouldn't say specifically that we will then carry out a specific risk assessment to assess the impact because I don't think it'll be that material. But I'd be interested to hear your both take as well. At Q2, will you have another look at certain reserves and assess accordingly?
2: Well, I suppose there's two things in my mind. One is if we really are at the start of a long period of dismantling of globalisation structures, I suppose whilst that's negative for us in many ways, it means potentially lots more homegrown business opportunities and therefore more homegrown insurance opportunities. And I suppose what that means is for a global insurer, your distribution channels may have to flex and change in order to make the most of those. That was the one thing. But I suppose the other thing is inflation, which amazingly we've talked for half an hour we haven't even talked about inflation and again inflation has been largely driven by this year has been driven or intensified by political events do you want to talk a bit about how your strategy reacts to inflation or preempts the sort of inflationary forces the things that you and underwriters will be doing slightly differently
1: i think it's actually been in a strange way helpful to have a very different inflationary environment and a step change for businesses to now actually focus on inflation because it's always been there. It's been reasonably stable, but it's in some ways made certain businesses a bit lazy. And we at Canopia set up an inflation working party a couple of years ago because trying to unpick the bridged loss ratios from reserving to pricing to planning, et cetera, actually inflation is a huge driver. And actually the days of a re-underwriting credit have long since gone. And actually looking at the fundamental drivers of the change in in your performance are largely driven by inflation. So what this has now meant is that everyone's taking a much closer look at their reserves, their planning, their pricing and factoring in an explicit element. And it's sort of fascinating. At the beginning of our journey, we asked the underwriters, give us a view. What is inflation? And they'd say, well, I can't. It's far too complicated. I can't possibly give you a specific number. And then we sort of draw a line in the sand, pick a number, and then when you come back the next quarter, you say, well, can I have an update? They say, well, it definitely can't be that. It's higher or it's lower. And this sort of funnel of uncertainty has, for us, narrowed quite materially. And then looking at the individual components of inflation, economic excess, social inflation, et cetera, and defining it very clearly, and then bridging from one quarter to an and from planning to pricing, I think has been actually a real step forward for all businesses and it's great the whole concept of winner's curse actually you want the rest of the market to be more informed and to price appropriately because there's no use in being the best price and most accurate if you are simply the highest because others haven't reflected it in their own pricing.
0: I think that's really interesting the way you're describing this is a really joined up approach A really kind of connected view. I feel like sometimes in insurers, it can feel like lots of silos going on where lots of different groups are forming their own view on inflation. But actually, it's such a connected thing that having a consistent view, and as you say, it's quite judgmental. So it's better to get lots of different perspectives and angles on it to help form a consistent view.
1: Absolutely. And the likes of the claims team need to give a very clear perspective on how updated, for example, outstanding case reserves are because that will sort of very much influence your reserving and how much additional load you need to apply to not sort of double count that increase. I think what's been really fascinating through Calm, there was a survey we carried out two or three years ago where we asked insurers to set out the bases of the different returns and the different areas where they needed to set out their reserves or their loss ratios. So reserving, planning, pricing, Solvency 2TPs, et cetera. And then if you then sort of can imagine this grid where you've got the different bases on one side and the insurers across the top, it was literally like a Mondrian type abstract expressionism of different approaches. And I think personally, having one version of the truth, yes, it may not be perfect and it might have some interesting consequences, particularly when looking at new business opportunities, but having that one version of the truth and not letting actuaries and underwriters leave the room until they've come to a consensus Knowing the uncertainties, in my mind, has really been a step forward. I wanted to ask one more question on culture, because
2: I think we all agree that culture is really important. It's important because it's the right thing to do, to have a good and positive culture. But I'm also interested in culture as something that works, something that actually makes a business more successful, makes the business more profitable, the sort of business that others will want to invest in, etc. Do you want to just talk about how that feeds into your strategic thinking?
1: Absolutely. And I think our journey started a good couple of years ago. And identifying the likes of inclusion and diversity would genuinely create a better working culture it would attract better talent and at the end of the day the talent is the most important thing throughout any business and how we're going to succeed and so for us i've certainly seen a sea change throughout the industry and certainly at canopius where honesty authenticity and sort of accountability and calling out poor behavior and allyship all those things I can see them in sort of specific examples and that people are very open now and they're very willing to call things out. And having that better way of working has just improved collaboration and working relationships. And you can see it come through in better outcomes and improved working because it all comes back to sort of this virtuous feedback loop, which the PRA are very hot on, quite rightly so, because it is the key to success. It's having all capabilities contribute to a single common goal individuals being able to understand their contribution and feeling valued and it's incredible as well how the working environment does have a material impact on people and even things like having good tools and processes meaning that they can spend more time on value-add work and actually it's interesting how complex some of the Lloyd's returns are And we've heard people who have left the business because they don't want to work on complex and very bespoke areas. So the more that we can do to sort of normalise and make things consistent and simple, the more that individuals can do to contribute and feel like they're contributing and making a difference, the sort of more efficient business you're going to have and the more profitable you're going to be. Very true. I think that's a
0: great note to end on. Cool. Today. So, thank you so much. We do always like to end on some more fun questions. I always call them fun. I don't know how fun people <laughs> think they are. But I get
2: a lot of fun out of them.
0: Yeah, same. So, the first question is What would your dream job be outside of financial services?
1: Well, I've got to say, I mean, I don't think my lungs are quite up for it, but I would have loved to have been a professional athlete. I think that'd be a pretty awesome job, if you can even call it that. Because being able to live in some exotic country and spend day-to-day training, I think having been through more and more savage endurance tests over the last couple of years, I'd say, it's incredible how you can sort of push your body to do things that you didn't think were possible. And so I would have loved to have devoted years to seeing how far I could push myself. Fantastic.
2: And then the second question is, if you were to have Jess and I around, to your place for supper, what would you cook for us?
1: Great question. I love cooking. I'm quite a fussy eater, so I love making great food. And I think my dinner party of choice would be Mexican. I think it's a great opportunity. You've got ceviche, you've got beef tortillas, fresh guacamole, but then it's a great excuse for tequilas, margaritas, (laughs) as well as sombreros and fake moustaches, so (laughs) bring it on. This
2: is brilliant. This is a contender for the best one yet, I reckon.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: You had me at margarita. Done. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much. It's been a really interesting chat.
2: Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. That's been fantastic. And looking forward to seeing you again
0: soon. all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks time for another episode.
2: This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freeguard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode.
0: This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.